0: five years we have two kids that are 31 and 28 I am a professional um, as I said like I think that if you do something for a really long time and you're really good at it you can call yourself a professional and um, and the other thing is that I uh, my for my living I practice as a psychiatrist in the Washington DC area which means I'll never be out of a job and I'm really <laughs> I'm really grateful for that we're never moving Um, tonight I would would love for you to uh, join me I I would love for us to together have a conversation about uh, ultimately what does it mean for us to live into God's calling that we become outposts of beauty and goodness in the world I want to invite you to consider that what we are made to do In God's imagination long before we ever were on the earth we were made to become objects of beauty and goodness ourselves such that we then with Jesus co-create this same beauty in the world such that the world looks at that beauty and glorifies our Father in heaven now that's a little different kind of proclamation of the gospel than We are sinners who need to repent in order for us to be forgiven in order that we go to heaven when we die. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're not sinners. I'm not suggesting that we don't need to repent. I'm not suggesting that the new heaven and new earth is coming and that it's going to come for those people who are willing to put up with it, right? As Dallas Willard used to say, God is willing to let anybody into his heaven who can take it. Because as we read in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, when heaven gets here, If we aren't ready for it, its beauty may crush us. And so part of what we are doing, what we're going to talk about tonight, is what does it mean for us to practice becoming outposts of goodness and beauty in the world such that when the new heaven and earth gets here, we will be ready for it. I want to begin with this i want to begin by uh, making the claim that we are people of desire. We are people of desire. And this longing that we are made of comes right out of God's heart. That for us to be made in God's image, if we buy the notion that we are made in God's image, and if God has decided that he longs to make us, than to be made in his image means that we are a longing people. We are a wanting people. And we see this right out of the chute in two ways. One of the way, one of the first ways that we see it is our physical appetites. Babies come into the world and they want, they want, want, anybody here been around a baby? Like they just want, 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 right? And it like, they just, all the time. Until they don't, when they're teenagers, you, right? Except they want you to be in the house, they just don't want to have anything to do with you. So we are a wanting people, right? We long for our hungers to be satiated. We long for our thirsts to be quenched. We are a wanting people. We are a desiring people. But we aren't just desiring anything. We don't wake up in the morning and say, gosh, I hope my day is mediocre like we're not looking for mediocrity we are wanting to wake up and we want to grab the day by the shoulders and say let's go but there's nothing more that we want we don't want there's nothing that we want more than this longing to be longed for I want to say this to us, there's nothing that a newborn, that an infant, that a toddler wants more than to run into the room to see her or his parents joyfully looking for them running into the room. We want to be wanted. I don't just want things. I want to know that you want me to be in the room with you. And so we would say in our business of psychiatry, we would say that in many respects as we read the biblical narrative and we're talking about mental health, we would say well, one of the ways that we talk about this longing to be longed for is that I long to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. This is a way that we talk about it in the field of neuroscience and interpersonal neurobiology. We, we talk about this long, that I long to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. And we're going to talk, what, what's that, why is that important? Because. Uh, when a newborn comes into the world, uh, you know this, right, they're naked. I don't know if you know this or not, right? They're naked when they come into the world and they're they're wet and they get cold and they're hungry, all these things. And in order for them to get what they need, they first have to be seen by us. I long to be seen deeply. Behold, the God who sees me. This is Hagar in the desert. This is newborns at birth. This is me at 59. I wanna be seen, I wanna be seen by my wife I wanna be seen, I mean, heck, my kids are now old enough. I wanna be seen by, my, my kids are 31, 20. I wanna be seen by my kids. We wanna be seen by our friends. And here's an interesting thing, both from a neurobiological and I would say even from a biblical and spiritual standpoint, I really want to be seen by my enemies. In fact, my enemies are my enemies precisely because of the things about me that I most long to be seen by them about. I wanna be seen. And I can't know that I'm being seen unless I actually see you seeing me, right? Because there are plenty of times, how many of you have had a conversation with somebody when they say, well, no, I understood you, right? That's what the husband said to her, said to his wife, right? I understood you. she's like, don't ever say that to me again, (laughs) right? Because like, I don't feel understood. I don't feel seen. He said, no, I saw you. No, you didn't. You know how this goes. I know that I'm seen when I have the experience, like the literal physical experience of you seeing me and not on your terms, but on mine. So I wanna be seen, but the next thing I need is I need to be soothed. I'm longing, I'm desiring to be soothed because this is the other thing that we learn right from babies. They come out, they're seen, but they're not like just seen. oh, there's a baby who's crying and newborn in the world. No, they want to be soothed. There is something that they need. They need to be tended to, they need to be, warmed up, they need to be cleaned up, they need to be held, they need to be all the things that I'm going to see them and then soothe their needs. Seen, soothed. And if we practice this being seen and soothed long enough, we create a space within any system, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a church, whether it's in an educational system, whether it's in a business, whether it's in a library, whether it's in a law practice, whether it's in the engineering department of your company, whatever it is. I'm gonna be seen, soothed, and I'm gonna create a space where I'm gonna be safe. And we could have a long conversation about how that word has been used or misused in our culture currently, but I wanna say this, that to be safe in in these terms, we mean I can be comfortable and confident in this system. That's what I can be. I can be comfortable and confident. Because kids can be comfortable and confident in their homes. You can be comfortable and confident in this church environment. We can be those things. But then we get to the place where we want to be secure. And secure and safe, we might think, well, that's, that's a similar word. I'm going to use this word, so I'm using it differently because to be secure means that once I am safe, I am now launched into taking the kinds of risks that are good to take. I'm going to walk out into a space in which I am going to take the kind of risks in which I might get my knee skinned and my nose bloodied. I might make mistakes. People might get upset with me. Things are not going to go well. We're going to have Apollo 13. Right, but we don't have Apollo 13 if people aren't first taking the risk to launch people into space. But when we have these kinds of things, then we have the opportunity to return to a place in which I'm seen, soothed, and safe. Are you with me? I wanna be seen, soothed, safe, and secure because in my security, I'm gonna actually go take the risks of creating new things. We're gonna come back to this. I'm gonna take the risk of creating new things that heretofore the world has never seen. And so I want, I'm a wanting person, we're a wanting people, and we want to see these things, but we're not done. We're not done with being known in this way. Because once we have this, once this three-year-old has the sense that she's Seen, soothed and safe and she can run around the corner and she can go out and play with her friends and she's secure. she at some point, she's gonna come running back into the kitchen and she's gonna hold something and it's something that she's made. It's gonna be some piece of paper with Crayola crayons all over it and she's gonna hand it to you and she wants you to put it on the refrigerator and she wants you to charge admission for people to come and see it. <laughs> because the other thing that we see, that we discover that once we discover that we were made to be seen and soothed and safe and secure. We recognize that like that's all the preamble for the next stage. And the next stage is that we were made to make stuff. I'm gonna be these things. I'm gonna be seen and soothed and safe because as it turns out like, oh my gosh, to fully be like my creator, to be made in the image of God is not just to be a person who thinks. It's not just to be a person who imagines. It's not just a person who has a body who can build bridges. I want to make things. Because if we are made in God's image, and God is primarily, before you see anything else in the scripture, God is making things, right? We don't hear, the the scriptures do not begin with like, and God was a God who was a really, really strong God. No, the scriptures begin by just telling us what God is making. And the scriptures don't tell us he's a maker, they describe this is what God does. This is who he is, he's a creator. And then he comes along and says, he doesn't say this about antelope, I don't know if you know, you you read that in Genesis, he doesn't say this about antelope, he doesn't say this about paramecium, he doesn't say this about sunflowers. He says it about humankind that it's in our image that we will make this particular batch of creatures. In our image, and we want them to make things just like we do. And we're gonna give them a world in which they can do that. And so our children come to us, our three-year-olds, not knowing it, they are living breathing embodied exegetical expressions of the first two chapters of Genesis. They don't even know this. But Jesus says over and over and over again, unless you become like little children and change, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you remember that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be playfully willing enough to know that your job is to make stuff. And if you don't do that, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. If your world is all about just getting through my freaking day, if your world is about making sure that I can just solve the problems so that we will be all right, if that's all that life is left, then you're gonna miss the fact that when heaven gets here, we're gonna ask you to make stuff and you won't know what to do with it because you'll be looking for problems to solve that don't exist. But you were made to create things. So we are people of desire, as it turns out, and a desire to be known deeply, to be understood, to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. But then as it turns out, all that is the predical is the predicle, our longing to make things in the world. And here's the other thing. We don't just want to make mediocrity. Our child does not bring in the paper and think, yeah, dad, that's kinda like my, my, my rough draft of the painting. No, she thinks this is great. We want people to enjoy the things that we hand them. We want them to think that this is really wonderful for this reason, because we know that when you see this beautiful artifact, the artifact itself will become a medium whereby which our relationship becomes even more deeply connected. And so beauty already starts to emerge in the minds and hearts and bodies and behavior of the little ones and Jesus says, look at them and they'll know, and you'll know who you're supposed to become. I long to create artifacts of beauty. And those artifacts are not just painting. Those artifacts are relationships. Those artifacts are my software. Those artifacts, not just the furniture that I make, those artifacts are gonna be the, the breakfast that I make uh, for my spouse. they so are gonna bring it, to him, bring it to her in bed, gentlemen, tomorrow morning. <laughs> right, these are the things that we're gonna create. This is what we were made for. And we see that again, that this notion of creating artifacts of beauty is important, not just because it strikes us as obvious, because as it turns out, as it turns out, ever since Genesis three, we have not been looking for beauty in the world. In fact, beauty has been continually, repetitively, systematically trampled underneath, and it just keeps coming. So we see it in children, we see it developmentally, that we long to create things, and the things that we long to create themselves as artifacts of beauty are things that themselves then turn around and draw us even more deeply into connected relationship. But we don't stop there. When we look back at Genesis chapter one and two, we start to see some things about how God operates. So for instance, when we read the texts in Genesis one, all about light and darkness, all about the water above and the water below, all about the land from the sea. We see repeatedly, over and over, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. What's really interesting about this is that the Hebrew word for good is interchangeable with the Hebrew word for beauty. And God saw that it was beautiful. Let us make mankind in our image and let them be beautiful, like us. But you know, if we start to imagine what it's like when we think about beauty being what God made, we don't just see it as an object, right? And God saw that it was beautiful. As if like, he looks over at Tom and sees that he's made Tom and then says, my goodness, I haven't seen anything so beautiful in like the last 10 minutes. (laughs) Even if he's turning red (laughs) and turning redder. Okay? It's not just that God is seeing the objects that he's made and therefore declares them beautiful because they happen to be separate from him. I wanna suggest to you that the beauty that God sees emerging in the objects that he has created is becoming beautiful as a function of him looking at them. I want you to know this, that God does not just see you as an object of great beauty, which he does. God sees you and it is your beauty that comes forth precisely because he is looking at you. So here's a question. Who are the people in your life whose job it is to continually, regularly gaze upon you and call forth your awareness of your beauty? This is what it means to live in the image of God. This is what it means for us to pay attention to God's mission of creating beauty and goodness in the world. This notion that beauty isn't just a thing that objectively exists out there in the universe, it is a thing that we as humans are called to call forth by the way that we look at each other. Who are the people who are calling forth your beauty? and who are the people whose beauty you also are calling forth. It is part of what it means to be human. Now, um, there are some things that we would say that are part of this creative endeavor, part of this way of seeing beauty emerging. And we see that on the threshold of the end of Genesis chapter two, that this whole notion of being in God's image and being creators was waiting for the first couple. The man and his wife were naked and unashamed. And so I want us to pay attention to the fact that if beauty is going to emerge, there are some conditions that are necessary for it. Number one, it's important for however we are working together for us to be differentiated. I said to our gathering this morning, I said, when I got married, I thought I wanted to marry my wife Phyllis and as it turned out I really just wanted to marry me I just wanted me to look like her because I really didn't want to be with the differentiated self I wanted somebody who thought like I did thought everything that I was funny thought was funny all the things like I really just wanted to marry me in another body and wouldn't we like to be able to live in the world with people who are just like us I would, I would love for beauty to show up in the world in such, a re, in such a way that like, I don't have to work to be differentiated from you and to like cooperate with you and all the things that we would have to do in order for beauty to emerge. That's one necessary element. If beauty is going to fully emerge, it requires differentiation. Me from another part or more particularly, different parts of me that I really wish weren't there. How many of us have parts of us even tonight that we would say, oh, I can think of certain parts of me, certain parts of my story that I really wish weren't true, that I work really hard to not pay attention to, I work really hard to actually get rid of or work really hard to, like, bury. I work really hard to make sure that nobody else sees because those are not the parts of me that I would ever imagine to be beautiful. And I want to suggest to you that those are the very parts that Jesus is coming for. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, those are the parts that Jesus is going to look at and say, I've never seen anything more beautiful than the part of you that has been abused. I've never seen anything more beautiful than the part of you that has been mistreated. I've never seen any more, anything more beautiful than the part of you that has been ashamed." And why? It's because I'm the one who's looking at it. And we all have them. It requires that we're differentiated. It also requires that we're gonna be vulnerable for us to create beauty in the world. There's no artist in the world that creates without being vulnerable in the act. If you're gonna create art and then you're gonna put it out there for people to see, somebody's gonna come along and say, I don't like that. I didn't like that piece of music. I don't like that painting. I don't, I don't, I don't, I like, I like that sucks. I don't, all these things that I don't like. And we're gonna have to be vulnerable to do this. And in the same way that we are required to be vulnerable, so the man and his wife were naked, right? They were vulnerable. And it's not just about their physicality, it is about the fact that they need each other because they don't each on their own have what they need. I need what you have in order for us to create beauty and goodness in the world together, even if you're different from me, especially if you're different from me. But I also need you to protect my dignity. I also need you to protect the parts of me that are wounded, of which I'm ashamed, that I can't carry by myself, that if we're going to carry them, we need to carry them together, but I'm going to have to trust that when I give them to you, when I reveal them to you, that you're not going to take them out into public and ruin me with them. I need to be differentiated, I need to be vulnerable, and I need to do this in the absence of shame. And when shame is not given the opportunity to be in charge of the conversation, great beauty and creativity awaits. And this is what we were made to do. But we have a problem. And the problem is that we are a people who are also quite traumatized. And I use that word quite broadly at this point. We could quibble about its explicit definitions and how we use it clinically and how we're now using it culturally and its overuse and the ways that it's inappropriately used and all the things. But I just want to say there's nobody here in this room who hasn't at some place or point in their life who hasn't been traumatized. Because when we think about trauma, we think about it in 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 the broad definition of it, when we think about it clinically, it requires two pillars when we talk about trauma. One, trauma exists in a situation in which A, a person has experienced something that is emotionally overwhelming. They're overwhelming. It's, I don't don't know what, I, I am overwhelmed, I am not able to emotionally regulate myself in this moment. That can happen for a lot of different reasons. But the second important piece also plays a role, and that is that not only am I overwhelmed, but second, there's nothing I can do about it. I have no agency to change my situation. One of the things that was really striking about data on 9-11 was the fact that there weren't more cases of PTSD that emerged out of that. And the reason was because it was understood that there were so many people who knew right away that what they had to do was to go find a counselor, go find a therapist who could help them deal with this as soon as they possibly could. Here's the thing you bruise your arm, right? A mild bruise, you don't even, I mean, it's so mild, you don't even remember, you hit your arm on a door jam walking through two days ago, and today, it shows up and you notice that there's a bruise, but it's barely even sore, you don't even remember how it happened, and you think it's just a bruise. You don't think that that's trauma. Now, I'll tell you this, if you take a microscope, if you take a microscope and you look at the flesh, if you look at the tissue just underneath the skin, all you will see is carnage. And if you were to be shown this picture and you were to be asked what happened here, you'd have said like, man, like, that's a bad train wreck, man. (laughs) Like how many people died in that? But we will say, no, it's not traumatic because your arm has enough support to come in and take care of all that bruise and you don't even notice that. But it doesn't mean that there hasn't been a traumatic event that took place with the arm. You're not traumatized because you're able to take care of it. But there are plenty of ways in which we as kids have had experiences in which we were overwhelmed and we were able to cope with it effectively enough to bury it, to pretend it didn't happen, to somehow like live. But we didn't necessarily have that rupture repaired. We didn't necessarily like fix that wound, right? We just, it just scarred over. And so for many of us, this trauma raises the question about how much of our life of creativity because of what trauma does through its mechanism of shame which we're not going to go into a great deal of detail tonight if you haven't there's a book out there you can read it if you haven't bought it you should buy it but one of the most powerful ways that trauma effectively ruins our lives is through the use of shame is through primarily, one of the primary ways that shame operates interpersonally and neurobiologically is through its form of isolation. It cuts us off from ourselves and it cuts us off from one another. We could spend a whole evening just talking about isolation and then you put a pandemic on top of that. And we see how the traumas that we've experienced as kids and even as young adults, where we have unfinished business, that now spans 18 months into a pandemic, and we discover that that pandemic has revealed all kinds of unfinished business that we have. And you see, evil's intention is to devour you. I don't know if you know this. It is. It is. It is, it is like you're not living in a neutral universe. You're living in a universe in which evil's intention is to devour you. And one of the ways that it intends to do this, first and foremost, is to make sure that little by little, you are never enabled to do the thing you were made to do. And you were made to create beauty and goodness in the world. And it knows that if you ever find out that that's what you were made to do, and you start to do it, its days are numbered. And one of the most powerful things that isolation does, among all the other ways that shame is wielded is that it prevents us from creating beauty and goodness in the world. It's not just that shame makes me feel bad. It's not just that I then get depressed, that I get anxious. All those things are true. Evil's more than happy for you to be depressed and anxious. What it's most concerned about is that you not catch hold of the idea that creating beauty is really, really what you were made to do. As long as you are so much more preoccupied with all the other things in your life and you're not taking the risk of making the things that vulnerability would require of you, it's gonna be fine. Evil will be fine with that, as long as you're not taking those kinds of risks. If you couldn't be ashamed, if you couldn't in all the places, in all the ways it shows up in your story, if you couldn't be ashamed, what's the next act of creative vulnerability that you would take? What's the next relationship that you would make? What's the next new business that you would start? What's the next new entrepreneurial endeavor that you would begin? What's the next new difficult conversation you would have with your spouse or with your kids, with your adult parents? What would be the next new artifact of beauty that you would begin to create? And so we have this trauma and this shame whose intention is to interrupt this calling of our being like God in his image. And what are we to do? You can just imagine, on game day, the Holy Trinity, right? This is day six. They played college football, they don't play on Sundays. <laughs> so game day for us would be like for the Ohio State Buckeyes, right? I, I know that you all have a football team here, right? For the city, right? Yeah, you play on, you play on the Sabbath. Mm-mm, mm yeah, we play on Saturdays, Holy Saturday in Columbus, we call it, right? And they're sitting on the precipice of this sixth day, and you wonder, right? And they, when, they, when they gather to, to have the conversation, let us make mankind in our image, like you're wondering, they are going to have a conversation, and you can expect, and you, Jesus might be thinking, like, I'm not sure this is a good idea, because I know where this is going. let's make them anyway because we can't not have them join us in this venture of creating the beauty that we want them to become we're going to take the risk and we're not going to let death stand in the way of it and so this is what they do they look at our lives i mean i'm 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 59 years old 59 years old and even in the last month, I have become more acutely aware than ever of the number of ways and times and places in my life that I turn around and say, well, why didn't I know what I know now then when I was 19 and 29 and 39? Like, why didn't I know these things? Because if I'd known these things then, then I would have lived a different life. I would have made different choices. I would have made better choices. I wouldn't have screwed this up. I wouldn't have screwed that up. There's nothing that evil would love more than for me to be asking that question. Because when I'm asking that question, I'm not actually asking the question, what is the thing that I'm about to create now? I'm just worrying about what I haven't done before. And we are living lives in which we are being distracted. By the way, I should let you know that it is Google's and Amazon's intention to train you to be distracted. Now I don't. I don't. By this, I don't mean that they have people sitting around and say, "Well, how can we distract people?" And at the same time, they have people sitting around thinking, "How can we distract people?" Because this is exactly what their technolo- what their, our technology is doing. It's training us to be distractible people. And for, if you're going to like, if you're going to create, it's going to take time. If you're going to like create like a baby, oh, well, that doesn't take time. That takes like thirty seconds. I, I get it. <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. If you're like, you can create a baby like that. That, that doesn't take very long. Be, like. That. Well, maybe a little longer than that, but you know, you got to work up to it. But you know what I mean. At some point, you have to talk about the subject without saying the subject, right? The subject is sex. But there, I said it. Now we're in a real church. I said it this morning. It's like I just can't speak publicly without at least once saying the word. Because, as we know, like it's in the room everywhere. Like anywhere, like two people that are of opposite sex or together. Like, like it's in the room. We could have another whole. Con- you want to come back tomorrow night? We can talk about that for as long as we want. Here's the point. The point is that I can't remember where I am in my talk. (laughs) Because I'm being distracted, right? By sex, that's why I'm being being distracted by this topic. You see, this is what happens to us. You said take my time? time? It takes time. Yes, it does, thank you. Thank you for the reminder. Our trauma not only ruins our story, it ruins how we think about our story. It doesn't just shatter the landscape, it shatters the lens with which I look at the landscape. And so the whole notion of my even being able to imagine creating while coming out of a context of trauma is virtually impossible for me to do. And this is why we need help. One of the things uh, that my wife does, she's a a social worker in Arlington County Public Schools, but she's also a child development specialist. And one of the things she likes to talk about is this notion that as parents, as adults, that it is our job to help interpret the world for our children. That's our job. We interpret the world, among among many things, we interpret the world for our children. It's important to note, this practice never stops. We are always in the business of needing other people to help interpret the world for us. And we especially need help interpreting the world when I have been traumatized and my shame is now in charge of the conversation. Because I'm gonna wanna tell a story in which God cannot be trusted, in which you cannot be trusted, in which I, in fact, can't even trust my own body. I can't trust my own self. Because if I'd only made different choices, then I wouldn't be in this trouble that I'm in. And that of course is how trauma and shame work. This is what evil would long for you to do. Like if you could just think out like how you would have done things differently, Never mind like your pastor or your dad or your mom or whoever else right, that was painfully broken themselves and did what they did. Never, if you could have just done something differently then things would have been fine. The way that we even tell that story is a traumatized view of how we tell stories. Because it leaves me in the position of believing that the way that I tell a story primarily is by myself. And human beings never tell stories very well when they're doing it by themselves. I need your voice to help me tell my story increasingly more effectively, more truly. And it is my trauma that won't, first of all, let me let you do that. And then I'm going to have to do it by myself. And I'll just repeat the same old stuff over and over and over again, which is not helpful for my brain. And so we come then to what we begin to consider doing if we're going to live into this calling of being people of desire, who are desiring to be known in order to create beauty and goodness in the world, but for whom our trauma and our shame is shearing everything off and shattering things. And we would say that the gospel is God coming and saying, I want to primarily before anything else, before I heal anybody, before I speak the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be Emmanuel. I'm going to be with you and with the intention that I'm taking you with me. Healing begins with presence. Healing begins with someone else walking into the part of your life that looks and feels like carnage, and they say, I want to be with you and I don't care how bad bad it gets, I'm not leaving the room. Tom mentioned that uh, my third book just came out last week, uh, The Soul of Desire, in which we talk about all these things in a lot more detail. And, one of the things that we talk about there are a couple of things that we talk about in this book a great deal and one of them has to do with the the work of art and the role that art plays in our lives what we like to say is that artists remind us of things that children have known from the beginning artists remind us about the things that are true about the world that we've forgotten and when we pay attention to beauty on purpose when we begin to practice paying attention to beauty beauty then itself begins to do healing work because beauty as God's representative begins to be present with us. And it draws our attention to something out beyond and away from my trauma so that my trauma is not the only thing that's running the show. Are you with me? So one of the questions that we put to people and that we invite people to do is answer this uh, this question. In what way Are you putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty on a regularly cadenced basis? I have a friend, his name's Andy, and there's nothing that he does every day. Before he doesn't look at any devices, the first thing that he does, he walks outside, and he looks for some place in his neighborhood where there's some kind of living thing, right? Some tree, some bush, some flowering plant, something. And he goes and he spends three or four minutes just being present with it in order for him to be reminded that he's not in charge of the universe, That God is, and that God is in the business of creating things anew, fresh today. Now, I would advise that you not like go do this in your neighbor's backyard. (laughs) Because that would be weird. And your neighbor would then call the police, then there would be a different kind of beauty you'd be trying to consider, (laughs) Like, In what way are you practicing putting yourself in the path of oncoming beauty on a regular daily basis? Because when we begin to do this, we begin to witness things that draw our attention to the possibility of beauty in ways that otherwise I wouldn't have imagined. Let's give you an example. If, um, if I were to ask you right now, um, how many yellow cars have you seen in the last week? Most of you wouldn't be able to answer that question, right? And if you could, I would have other concerns. Most of you couldn't answer that question, but if I were to give you the assignment, I want you to keep track of the number of yellow cars that you can, can keep, well, I want you to keep track of that for the next week, you would come in and not only would you be able to tell me how many yellow cars you saw this past week, but you would continue to count yellow cars for the next month. Because your brain is being primed to look for something that heretofore you weren't being primed to look for. When we are primed to look for beauty by practicing looking at it, we begin to find it in places that we would never otherwise even consider it being. And of course, when we think about beauty and we're looking for it in the middle of all the carnage, beauty that comes to our minds would all all be kind of obvious. I'll be kind of obvious, right? like When I think about beauty, I think about the sunset. I think about uh, beautiful paintings, I think about a range of different things. I don't think that I'm going to look for beauty in the middle of carnage. I don't think I'm going to look for beauty in the middle of my history of abuse. I don't think the beauty is gonna be found in the middle of my depression, my anxiety, my broken marriage, my, can't, my, my recovery from COVID, all the things that we would name. I don't imagine beauty to be showing up in the places where it simply isn't. But then we get to the gospel and we discover that that is exactly what Jesus is up to. It's not those who are well who need the doctor. The artist doesn't need to come and play at the Met. The artist needs to do what's, what uh, veteran Smailovic did, the art, who's often known as the cellist of Sarajevo, right? Back in the 1990s, between May and June of 1993, for 22 state straight days, this cellist, a member of the Sarajevo Philharmonic, this cellist, went to the bomb crater where 22 people days earlier had been killed in a mortar attack in a bread line. And he goes to the bomb crater and he plays and the world stops. The world didn't stop because NATO came with a new peace accord offering. The, the world didn't stop because somebody came with bigger tanks. The world stopped because as Dostoevsky writes, beauty is gonna save the world. Beauty in the middle of a bomb crater. And that's not where we imagine Jesus comes to show up. We don't imagine him coming and asking, I would like to know, I would like to have a list of your bomb craters because that's where I intend to play my cello. But we believe that that's exactly what he's doing, but he doesn't do it alone. And one of the other things, besides the artistry and the beauty that we see in the arts, the other thing that we talk about in the book is this notion that this healing venture, this recommissioning venture, this notion of becoming outposts of beauty and goodness in the world such that people will look at your good works and glorify your Father in heaven, always takes place in the context of a vulnerable community. It doesn't take place on my own. I'm not going to become an outpost by myself. It's not possible. My brain won't let it happen. I'm gonna need to be able to be in a community, what we call confessional communities in our practice. I'm I'm gonna have to be in a confessional community in which I can begin to look upon things and have others look upon things of me, where others can see my bomb craters, as it were, and ask me questions. And with that then in mind, we turn, and we'll go through this pretty quickly, we turn to the fourth verse of the 27th Psalm for guidance. And in that verse, we read the following that the writer says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, this only will I seek, right? So this is a person who knows that like, they're gonna have to persevere, they're gonna have, they're gonna have to go after one thing and one thing only, they're gonna be that serious about it. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and that I may inquire in his temple. What does it mean for us to dwell? It doesn't mean for us to, um, it's, it's not a drive-through fast food. It's dwelling. It's remaining. One of the ways we help people practice dwelling and giving their senses is even a way to do it. Let's bring up the first picture. Now, you see this. Uh, you, you may or may not be familiar with the work of Mark Rothko. Now, I, I knew of this guy but didn't know of his work, and he's a guy who's famous... For an, he's an American painter and he um, drew these large ca- painted these large canvases that are just these three bands of color, it looks like three bands of color, until you go to the museum and you discover it's not just three straight bands of color, there's all kinds of layers of color that you can't see unless you're going to dwell with the painting. You can't look at this painting for three minutes and get everything out of the painting that the painting wants to give to you. A lot of life is like this. It is important that if we're gonna be in a community together, In order for me to be seen, I'm going to have to dwell. I can't sit with the Rothko for five minutes and experience it in the way it was meant to be experienced. How many of us wish that God could just treat us like fast food, get in, get the job done, get out, and we would all be fine. Instead, he asks me to dwell with him. How many times do I wish Jesus could like just get on with the job, right? All the stuff about me that is still not figured out, still not fixed, I wish we could take care of this. No, he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna dwell with you. And I'm like, but that's gonna take a long time. He's like, yeah, I got all like, uh, eternity as it turns out. <laughs> so we dwell in communities. But i'm dwelling in the house of the lord i'm not just and so for david the one who wrote this right there's a progression of what it means to be in the house of the lord from the time that we first write this psalm the house of the lord would have been the tabernacle it's a tent but we then move from there to the temple and then we move from the temple to when jesus in john 2 says you tear this down i'll build it in three days So the house of the Lord has now thus far moved from the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus. And then we get to Pentecost and we discover that the Holy Spirit gets involved in the game. And now the temple isn't just Jesus and his personal body, it's us. And we hear then Paul write about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12 and we see that like, we are the house of the Lord. For me to dwell in the house of the Lord is not to come to Christ Community Church on Sundays, it is to be in community with you. But to be in community with you is not just to come on Sunday mornings. it is to dwell. It is for you to know who I am and for me to know who you are in order for the Holy Spirit to have the opportunity to see and then do the next thing so that I can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In order for me to dwell, I then am given the opportunity to gaze. I can't gaze if I'm just coming in and leaving. When my friend and I first went to the Rothko Room in the American Gallery, when we first went to the Rothko Room, most of the people who were there were in and out in five minutes. But gazing means that we do the following. Let's bring up the next. You may be familiar with this. Some of you may have been here. It's the Pietà from Michelangelo, six thousand pounds of marble in St. Peter's Basilica, and we're first now getting. We're now getting the glimpse of what it means to gaze. because we're gazing at beauty. But we're also gazing at a mother who's gazing at her boy. And if we're paying attention and we sit with this long enough, we recognize that Jesus isn't satisfied with only looking at beautiful sunsets. He's asking us to give him the opportunity to gaze at the parts of us that we hate the most. We come to the next, next slide. This is Caravaggio, it's the incredulity of Thomas. Notice, Thomas can't even look at where Jesus is asking him to place his hand. Thomas isn't doing it on his own, Jesus has his wrist. We serve a God who says, look at my wounds. And if we're gonna live like Jesus lives, To gaze at each other in community means I'm gonna invite you to look at the parts of me, put your hands in the parts of me where the wounds are the deepest and the worst. Because it is out of this that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Imagine being invited by one to be this close to gaze because you're dwelling in order to inquire of the Lord, and there are four questions that we can ask. There are a lot more than just four, but there are four questions that we ask in the book. We're just going to walk through them real briefly. When we inquire of the Lord, when we inquire of others' wounds, when we inquire of the parts about our stories that we hate the most, the first question that we're going to ask is Genesis three nine. where are you? Where are you? Now it's important for us to recognize that that question being asked in a middle eastern religious cult like the hebrews had that question is not going to be asked like an american would ask it when i ask you where you are you would say well i'm in kansas city missouri because you really think that all i'm asking is where you are as an individual but what the bible is asking you is where are you in relationship to me That's what God is asking Adam. Not just where are you? Yes, you're over in the bushes. Where are you in relationship to me? Where are we? Not just where are you, where are we? Where are we? The next question, what do you want? There is no more important question than this, what do you want? These are Jesus' first words in the Gospel of John, John 1, 38, what do you want? And I'll tell you that most of us are just so terrified of answering this question that we don't even consider it most of the time. Could you please tell me what the right answer to that question is so that when I give you the answer, I'm not gonna be in trouble, right? That's what I wanna know. For some of us, I've been working so hard to bury what I want, because what I want is too tangled up with all of my shame and my brokenness. And so one of the most common questions that we get from patients when I ask, what do you want? They'll say, well, I want to not be anxious. I want to not have panic attacks. And I say like, that's what you don't want, but that doesn't tell me what you want. To name what I want is really risky business. But I'm not the one who came up with the question. This is Jesus coming up with the question. Can I have the next slide, please? The next question is, can you drink this cup? Matthew 20, 22. The mother of James and John have finally, she's finally like become impatient because her boys have been off with this itinerant preacher. They've left her husband with the fishing to do, and they've not established a very secure retirement plan. And she figures, that in response to this and payment for all their work, running around with him instead of helping with the fishing, that at least being number one and number two on his right and his left might be a good plan. That's gonna be a good plan. So she comes, in this passage, she comes and says, when you come into your kingdom, can you give my boys on your right and on your left? And he says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he asks this question, turning to them, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Can you drink the cup? Because here's the news. If we are going to do this work of creating beauty and goodness in the world, we are going to suffer now the thing is this here's the caveat you're gonna suffer no matter what as I tell people like you can work hard and stay in prison or you can work hard and go free but hard work is not an option my friend and the Japanese American artist Makoto Fujimura has painted this called the tears of Christ when we come to discover that this particular kind of painting, this painting is uh, probably about three or four by six feet. And it's a particular kind called Nihonga, N-I-H-O-N-G-A. And all the colors that you see here are suspended pulverized mineral. It's not acrylic. It's not acrylic paint. So malachite, azurite, copper, silver, gold, all of these mineral they're rocks, are literally hand pulverized to the consistency of talc. Can you imagine how much that would take? Hand pulverized in Japan. And then the talc is mixed with a watery glue that when you mix it up, it looks like paint. But then Mako will take this and layer this on the canvas and then tilt the canvas or move the canvas and it's going to go where it goes. And it will take maybe sometimes hours, if not days, for the first layer of paint. And here's what we know, because this is mineral, every time that the more finely it's pulverized, the more it refracts the light, the more beautiful it is. And this is what it means for us to suffer. This painting is titled, The Tears of Christ. But I wanna tell you that this is who we are becoming. And we notice that there's not just one mineral because this painting wouldn't be what it is if we only had all gold or if we only had all azurite. It requires me to be differentiated with others who are gonna be vulnerable, right? For Mako to do this requires great vulnerability. Takes a long time to paint one of these. But we find that if we're willing to do this work, if we're willing to answer the question, yes, I'll drink the cup, that this is what we become. But we don't become this as individuals, we only become this in the context of a vulnerable community, within which I am dwelling, by whom which I am being gazed upon, not least of which, not just my strength, but the parts about me that are most vulnerable, in order for this beauty to emerge. I'm gonna go five more minutes, is that right? And we'll be done. So uh, I have two kids. I have a 31 year old daughter who's a pastor in Nashville. And there's no one I enjoy listening preach the word more than her. We have a son who's 28 and he's in graduate school in California. And they both have lived radiant lives, as I said this morning to the group. He started grad school, our son Nathan, I can say this because he has said these things publicly. We started, uh, he started grad school uh, in California. We live in Washington, California, uh, last year. And he started in September, and we were just calling to check in on 1st of October. And uh, in that phone call, we knew that something wasn't right. Two days later, my wife and I were on a plane. We figured we'd go for three or four days, help clear things up because this is a kid who has just like been effective at everything he's done in his life. We went for three or four days and stayed for seven weeks. We found a young guy that I didn't recognize. We found a young guy that was really in trouble More than I've ever known someone to be in trouble, and I've never been more frightened as a parent my entire life. There were multiple nights when my wife and I would go to bed, and I was just praying to God that he'd be alive in the morning. And I'm the psychiatrist. I can tell you there wasn't much beauty in Southern California that I could see. Now I will tell you that this boy has worked as hard as anybody I know in the last 12 months. And this is a kid who in the middle of his pain, he's also a musician. In the middle of his pain began to write. And he began to write things that his mom and I couldn't imagine him writing. And I can tell you that he's in a very different place because the family of God came Do we have the recording? So I want us to hear, before, hang on just a second. I want us to know that, um, wait. That's often the case, I ask people to do things, and they just don't. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so, so, so sorry. <laughs> no shame, no, no, no shame. Right, that's the, we're, we're in a third book now, that, that's the last book, that, that's, a, that's a previous book. I want to invite you to just sit with, this is is a short song, it runs for about a minute and 50 seconds, it's not very long. And I want you to sit with it, I want you to imagine that there are places in our lives where Jesus is coming and inviting us to come and to gaze upon things, and to do the work that is necessary in order for beauty to emerge, in order for us to become outposts of that very beauty in the world. And I want to suggest that this song represents what God is wanting to do in our lives. So I'm gonna step off the stage, and when I get down, then you can play the song, and then we'll come back. Will you do that? Okay, all right.
1: What if this year was in a waste? what if i took something from all these days learned how to live with something closer to yeah what if this year was in a waste learned how to be loved by someone else learned how to up my brothers in pain cause I'm hurting as well. I learned to declare what I've left unsaid. To take a few chances and get all the worry right out of my head. So take what I've seen and store onto these memories to banish the demons that I've kept at bay, so keep going slow, no need for haste, yeah what if this year was in
2: Well, first of all, Kurt, thank you so much for sharing. Would you guys give Kurt a hand? Um, You said a lot of amazing things, but what I loved, do you need some water or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, sorry.
2: Tom, can can you get us something? Thank you, there you go, yeah. Okay, wow! i have
0: just say at this moment, you are the most beautiful man.
2: <laughs> Tom, honestly, now that you're up, will you get us some stools up here, too? Yeah, just grab those.
0: Wow. Wait, 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 wait. you're like the senior pastor here, right? No, 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 no. See,
2: I'm creating space for Tom to, to create. be more beautiful. Great. Look at to that. Be, like. Wow. Uh, let's let's Somebody do it. No, Kurt, to come back. You're I, out of the screen. Oh, You're out of the camera. Sorry. There. Yeah. Why don't we move the table That'd be great too, okay. Tom. If you could move the table. <laughs> and one more thing. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Where what were we talking
0: about? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I I'm just listening to you tell Oh
2: right. Too. Oh right. Sorry. Um, Kurt, thank you for sharing so much. Um, we got a couple, of, we got some good questions. So, are you ready? Can we, can we dive in? Are we ready? Yeah, so. let's, okay, let's do it. Um, you talked early on about, do we have people in our lives who can tell us, do you, do you see how God sees beauty in you? Mm. What are tangible ways that we can call forth that beauty in other people around us how do we do that
0: well you know i think um we have this interesting uh exercise I don't, are there any therapists here anybody here, anybody here does, does marriage therapy oh, you can raise your hand like oh, you can raise your hand all the way up it's okay there's no shame in being a marriage therapist right so uh, so you all, all know this right so there is oh are you guys well oh beautiful right great so um there is an exercise that we will have couples do on occasion and it's this it literally it is this gazing exercise that we'll have people do Well, these couple will have them and these are couples who are not happy with each other which is why the people don't couples don't come to me and say kurt we want to pay you a lot of money just to tell you how happy we are they don't they don't do that they come in and we'll say like i want you to sit knee to knee just gonna look and i want you to for the next five minutes i want you to gaze with loving kindness into each other's eyes and of course they're kind of like they getting their ice picks out because they're this is not easy to do and of course at first glance the, and we're not looking for you to like to stare at each other it's not like you can't blink at all but i simply want you to gaze at each other with love and kindness and of course it's really uncomfortable and these are these are people who have sex i said that word again people who have sex with each other and but they can't look at each other because they're mad they're upset like there's all this stuff that's really going on and so for the first 90 seconds It's really difficult for them to even be comfortable. Like you see it like their entire difficulty is translated through their whole body. After about 90 seconds, maybe two minutes, they start to settle in. And they become more comfortable with the notion. And here's the interesting thing. Like we haven't talked about their marriage. We haven't talked about what they're pissed off at each other about. We haven't done anything. And by the end of five minutes, they don't want to stop. And the reason they don't want to stop is because when's the last time anyone gazed upon you with loving kindness? For three continual minutes. This is what we long for. And so to answer this question, you might think, well, I don't know, what's this got to do with these things? The first thing is like that we are looking for people with the expectation that they are looking to be found. So when we want to create these communities, when we want to communicate this, we want to be curious with people so one of the things that we say that our brains are really primed to do we talk about this in the book quite a bit our brains are primed to do the work of judging things more than being curious about things i want to be more condemning that i am curious and i do this quite automatically i don't do this because i don't wake up in the morning and say i i'm I to like i'm gonna check off my I, gotta, I need to get 10 more people in my book that i've condemned today i'm gonna try to make a list of this i'm not looking to do this but i do it as a self-protective maneuver because I've got my own self-condemnation that is spilling out into other people. And instead, I'm not being curious. And so I want to be curious about things. So one of the things is to be, like, we're doing, and some of this is going to take the work of, like, if you're not, if you don't have anybody who's being curious about you, you're not going to have what it takes to be curious about somebody else. We can't give people what we don't have. It's just that simple. And so if I want to create a space for other people who are going to have the sense that they are being cared for by me, the first thing is that I'm going to have to assume that I'm somebody that they want to come and find them. That I'm that person, that that I'm the person that they want to have me come and find them. And then I'm gonna want to like literally do the work of being curious with them. And I can ask the questions, where are you? What do you want? How hard is it to drink the cup? Now there are variations on this. To ask like, where are you? you don't have to like last these 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 four questions. Um, but I guess I didn't get to the fourth question, did I? All right. That
2: was the next my next question. What's the so.
0: fourth? Question? <laughs> we'll do that next. All right, we'll do we'll, we'll do we'll do that next. I, I got distracted because of Amazon and Google. All right now, but 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 my point is is that. When we are asking questions of others, again, not to solve their problems, but with the intention of becoming more deeply connected with them, we create for them the experience of being seen, soothed, safe, and secure. So, those are four words that we can keep in our mind. When you leave your house tomorrow morning, or you're with your children tomorrow morning, you're not, like whatever you're doing tomorrow morning, I want you to have in your mind what is it going to be like for me to create space for anybody that I encounter? I don't care if it's the Starbucks barista who, when I encounter this person, in what way can I give them the experience of being seen, soothed, safe, secure? That's what I can do for them. And when I do, I am creating beauty and goodness in the world in that interaction with somebody that I don't even know. But I gotta tell you, they're looking to be found. Everybody is. But we have been so wounded that we've given up on anybody finding us. And so we assume nobody's coming. I go to church. I don't assume that Jesus is really coming. I'll listen to a sermon, but I don't feel him in my solar plexus because I've got a ton of my own trauma that's keeping him from me, and I'm gonna keep it that way. Not because I want to, but because I'm afraid to let him in. But the only way that's gonna change is if somehow I get within three feet of you and you start to ask me the very questions that we're talking about. And the fourth question, can we move to that one? The fourth question. This is Jesus and Peter in John 21. Do you love me? We talked about this this morning a little bit, like, do you love me? And what Jesus is doing, he's excavating. He's coming for Peter's shame. He's coming for Peter's unfinished business. When we are asking the question, do you love me? He's really getting at the reality that of course Peter loves him mostly, except for the part of him that threw him under the bus six weeks ago. And that part to which Peter would then say, no, I guess I don't. And I can imagine Jesus saying, finally, we've gotten you to talk about the part of you that thinks I'm not gonna wanna have anything to do with the part of you that hasn't loved me well. And I wanna tell you, that's the part that I'm coming for. That's the part that I wanna have put on full display right here in front of all the other disciples, right? they, They didn't have a private discussion out like privately, that's what a private discussion would be. They didn't have that in Jesus' consultation room. No, they had it in front of God and everybody, right? And of course, this is how we put shame to death when it's acting inappropriately. We expose it and we make sure that when we do, nobody's leaving the room. Nobody's gonna be condemning. We're just gonna be curious about this. This does not mean that we don't set limits. This does not mean that Jesus isn't placing demands on him. He did. Therefore, he said, feed my sheep. I have work for you to do. The work of dismantling shame is primarily about making sure That the works that god has prepared for you from before the foundation of the world get done it is your shame that is keeping you from doing them and most of the time you don't even know that's happening because you don't have somebody else coming to ask you these four questions but when they do when we are seen soothed safe we are allowed to be secure we're allowed to take the risks that we need to take to which people will see and glorify our Father in heaven. That's long-winded, sorry.
2: No, not at all. Actually, as an aside, that question to Peter, it strikes me as a pastor that that became the foundation of Peter's leadership. (laughs) I mean, That's the launch of
0: his leadership, is that moment of shame. Right, because you can figure, if he doesn't have this inquiry, if he doesn't ask this question, everybody is gonna know the thing that nobody talks about. Everybody's gonna know that no matter how blustery Peter becomes later on, we're all gonna know what Peter's capable of. And so like, he's not gonna be trustworthy. There's no way. And even, and if Jesus had had a private conversation with him, right, taking him off to the side and said, that thing that happened six weeks ago, I'm back, we're fine. <laughs> I got, yeah, I got the nail prints in the scar, but like, look, I'm like, yeah. You know, I'm ascending to my dad. I don't know what's happening to you. You're fishing. Like I, right? he, like he's no, he's not going to let. Because here's the thing. Can I do this? I don't know. yet. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So here, here's the thing about trauma and shame. Like we we think about it in our own individual lives, but the biblical narrative is very clear that what began in the Garden of Eden in very personal ways. With Eve, with Adam, between the two of them, eventually gets to John chapter nine. In John chapter nine, right, the opening of the text: as they walked along, Jesus, they, they saw a man blind from birth. And if you remember the story, Jesus, then they, they then say like, if if if, if I'm the disciples, I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, we're, we're here to create beauty and goodness in the world, like heal him, like it'll be on Instagram by like shortly, we're gonna, this is going to be awesome, right? No, what's their question? Who sinned? It's about condemnation. They're not being curious. Who sinned, this man or his parents, such that he was born blind? And Jesus basically says, like, y'all got the question wrong. This man was born blind, such that the works of God might be revealed in him. Jesus is coming for the blindness and saying, that's where the beauty is. The problem, the blindness was not the man, the blindness was the community. And this is what shame, when it is corporately managed, does to us. It's not just individuals who are ashamed, it is a collective, corporate shame wherein which the whole is larger than the sum of its parts. And so when Jesus has this conversation with Peter, he knows well enough that if he were to go off and have a private conversation and absolve all that, it's not gonna stop the corporate shame that has existed. Remember, Peter denied him, everybody left. If I'm sitting on that beach with Peter and Jesus doesn't have that conversation, even if Peter was the one who denied him publicly, I'm still, I'm like, I'm Thomas, I'm still gonna know that I denied him as much as anybody else did, I just didn't get recorded in the gospels. And so when Jesus calls Peter forward, he doesn't just call Peter forward. He calls everybody else's shame forward as well. And so the healing of shame doesn't just happen with one person. It happens corporately, if that makes sense. But it must take place publicly in order for the healing of shame to happen corporately. Okay, I'll stop with that. To answer your question, yes, you can do that. Okay, you can okay, do that. Okay, thanks. Okay? Thank you.
2: Um, Thank you. Okay, I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I, actually, I would love to hear you say a little bit more. How, how do you turn trauma, something that by itself causes great harm, into something instead that causes beneficial
0: growth? Well, let me just say that um, I, we, no individual does this. We do this. We do this, right? Because this is how the brain is made right, that the mind is an embodied relational process, right, that we, we do this together. No single person takes care of their trauma. I don't take care of yours. If I'm the doctor and you're the patient, and we're going to take out your gallbladder, right, or we're going like, to fix your broken leg that is traumatized, you actually have to cooperate with what it is that I want you to do. Like, we are going to do this together. That's the first thing to, 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 to bear in mind. The second thing is that the healing of trauma is always a series of very, very, very small steps. It's a series of very, very, very small steps, some of which I don't want to take at all, but the reason that I'm willing to take them is because you're in the room, not because the step itself is I suddenly discovered it's easy enough to take. I am going to take the step because I have the sense that you are with me, and I'm going to pay more attention to you now that I've been working with you for six months or now whatever it is, right? It's you that is actually enabling me to take the step. It's not because I've kind of like gathered up the courage, and I can now do the hard thing. Does that make sense? And so trauma is a series of very, very, very small, difficult steps. In the middle of those steps, I would suggest that there are things that we do, but the healing process itself is something that we do not control. Right? Like, you cut your finger, you put a Band-Aid on it. 10 days later, you take the Band-Aid off. The cut is completely healed. And all you did was put a band-aid on. You weren't in charge of all the healing process. Like something else, something like you've got nothing control. You got no control has to take place. And we would say that there are certain elements. You know, when if you've got COVID, I, we, I, I have I have a friend who's got a very close friend whose husband he's like 38, just died from COVID. Like otherwise, completely healthy. Like we don't have words for this. You go from being completely healthy to being, like somebody's in the unit and they're hooked up to like every machine you can imagine. And of course I don't think anything's happening because like I can't see anything happening. And the physicians are saying we're doing everything we can but the thing that they can't do anything about is they can't do anything about the body doing what only the body can do. And in this way there are only things that the Holy Spirit is gonna do and I can't make that stuff happen. There are only the things that I can do in very, very small steps and that you can do in very, very small steps. But when we do them together, this is the thing. The brain is able to do a lot of really, really hard work for a long time, as long as it doesn't have to do it by itself.
2: This is, a, this is my question, so everyone forgive me. But I, I have the microphone. This is my right. Um, right. Don't answer that. So, that wasn't the question. Um, so we're in. I really want to know your answer. As someone who's meditated a lot on trauma and trial, in, in, in our lives. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're in the book of James. Yeah, yeah. James starts by saying, "Hey, count it all joy uh-huh. when you encounter trial, because God's going to make you whole." As you think about. Yeah, how how do we as a church work with God in that process? You talked a little bit maybe about community. What else? What else should we be focusing on? And then maybe a little more abstractly, like what what's God going to do with that stuff in the new creation? Where where is this
0: going? So um, this is uh, uh, probably an answer that Tom Wright should be handling, like N.T. Wright. Right? We might handle it. But, but I, uh, so I'm going to I'm going to reflect on the James passage by. Um, uh, talk about another passage, and uh, the, and the other passage is the the next book, right? So I'm just going to talk about Romans 5, right? And Romans 5, we read these words that uh, we glory not only in this, not only in glory, right? But we glory also in our suffering because suffering leads to perseverance or endurance, and perseverance leads to character, and character leads to hope, and the most recent NIV translation, um, and hope does not put us to shame, which I think is a fine translation because uh, the word disappoint in English, the whole notion of disappoint, disappointment, the basis of that affectively from a neurological standpoint is shame. Shame is the basis of our sense of disappointment. Notice that Paul's not talking about that we glory that the sufferings themselves are, glory, are, are glorifying. Like we're, not, we're not saying that like, I have joy. We say, count it all joy. But one of the things that does happen that in the middle of suffering, as we like to say uh, in the business, uh, nobody makes any changes in their life until they've suffered enough. They have to cross some threshold of suffering. I got two guys in their early 30s, they're both given the same message that you've got high cholesterol, you've got high family history, you need to be on an anti-cholesterol medicine. The well, first guy, he, like, he sees it like he suffered enough, like the whole threat of having an MI early is enough, it causes him enough distress, enough suffering, he starts, he, he starts the anticholesterol medicine. The other guy doesn't suffer enough until he's having crushing chest pain at age 58. Our suffering leads us to perseverance. And perseverance necessarily leads us to the connection of other people. Notice that James also, he's not writing to individuals. I might read that, right? This is the other thing, I'm going to read the text, my North American style, I'm going to read the text, and I, Kurt, am to count it all joy. No, you and I together are going to count this joy because our suffering is going to drive us to pay attention to things that we otherwise will easily not pay attention to. Are you with me? And that requires perseverance. It necessarily requires practice, 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 practice. And In the next book, we're gonna talk about what's that like, what does neuroplasticity have to do with that? And it's actually a pretty big deal because the more I'm persevering, paying attention to you being with me in my suffering, that very fact, your being with me, presence with me in my suffering necessarily transforms my perception of what my suffering is. Does that make sense? My perception of suffering has everything to do with the degree to which I believe I'm isolated with the pain that I'm experiencing. It has far more to do with my degree of isolation than it has to do with the nature of the pain itself. And so joy is to be counted in the presence of people being willing to be with me, even though my suffering persists. In these confessional communities that we run, one of the most common things that happens eventually is someone comes in and starts to talk about their story and their story is really painful and the community hears it, senses it, feels it, welcomes it, and they have some experience of being seen, soothed, safe, secure. They feel better. Six weeks go by, they're back, and the same story, oddly enough, is still with them. Somehow their adult parents are still really badly behaved, and they're having to put up with things. And, but they come back and they're like, I, I thought, I, I already talked about that six weeks ago, I shouldn't have to talk about this anymore. Are you with me? So I'm like, I I shouldn't have to persevere with this. I shouldn't have to keep telling this story. Listen, you're going to have to tell your story of suffering until you're dead. Like, well, wait, that's not being a very good Christian. That's not like, I'm not growing in Christ. I shouldn't have to, like, no. In this world, you will have tribulation. That's the way it's going to be. But in the middle of the tribulation, you will also have me and have each other. And it is in the gazing. that you catch my suffering off guard. Because I don't expect you to continue to stay with me, with my suffering. I don't expect that. That's not what evil has trained me to believe. Evil has trained me to believe that if I'm suffering, like David writes in the Psalms, like I'm just an offense to others. I'm not somebody who others are gonna wanna hang around with. And so in that process of perseverance, we develop character and character develops because character becomes the substance of resilience that I develop because I'm practicing perseverance in the face of my suffering, neurobiologically. And we would say that in our, we like to say this, uh, people who were there this morning heard this kind of ad nauseum, uh, that we, what we pay attention to, we remember. And what we remember becomes our anticipated future. And if I am practicing being present with you in the middle of my suffering, and what I see is you're gazing upon me in a way that has you convincing me that you want to be in the room, It means that I'm going to anticipate that this will be my future because this is what I'm practicing in the present moment. Hope becomes then something that I construct with perseverance over time such that the sufferings that I experience, I can count them joy because even in the middle of it, I have a king who is coming for me. I think one of the other things that we have to realize is that The New Testament was not written to middle and upper middle class white Americans or African American Americans or or whatever, right? It it was written not to the empire. It was written to slaves. It was written to people who knew what it meant to be underprivileged. It was written to people who all they had was a king who was coming for them even if they were dying. Because of that, it becomes easy for me to forget that I have all these other things in my life that conveniently help me not have to suffer. Uh, Our son that you heard play, he said when he was in college, he was having a hard time having serious conversations with some of his friends in college. And I said, why do you think that is? He said, because like when they get close to pain, they just turn to their phones because their phones help distract them. And as long as this is what we're practicing, I never have to suffer because I think I shouldn't have to suffer. And so the whole notion of experiencing joy in the middle of suffering, like I never get the opportunity to discover that. But when we are doing this kind of work together, we discover that joy finds us as a function of your delight in being with me, even though the things about my life with which we suffer together are things that would have you otherwise wanting to leave the room. I'm sure Tom Wright would be much better at this.
2: <laughs> no, that was, thank you, Kurt. All right. Um, one more question. And then I'll, Tom, I'll invite you up. What's the last thing you want us to hear from you tonight?
0: We don't have time for this. <laughs> well, that's not the last thing I would want you to know. Uh, We we don't have time to do what I would like you to know. But what I would like you to know would require me to, would require each of us to take the time to, before we leave, find one person. And for five minutes, gaze upon them. so that they'll know that they are the most illuminating thing that you've seen all day. And it's not because that they're smart and it's not because that they're physically beautiful and it's not because of all the things. It's because they're standing and that they have a pulse. And that Jesus has come for us and he's coming for you. And he's gonna keep gazing until every shred of shame has been healed. And you are undoubted and undaunted in your confidence and comfort in knowing the works of beauty that God has waiting for you to co-create with him, practicing for the heaven that's coming. That's what I want you to know.
2: Thank you, Kurt. Will you guys give Kurt one more hand?
3: Thank you, Kurt. Uh, also, Andrew, that was a brilliant job together. I think you ought to travel the country and do this together. It was awesome. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I did want to m- mention something about tomorrow morning. Uh, there's an opportunity for professionals, let me just read this, Kurt will be presenting a three-hour presentation uh, tomorrow right here, it's called The Beauty of Transformation, Interpersonal Neurobiology, Longing, Beauty, and Community, uh, it's from 9 to 12. And if you're interested in registering, you have to register as a professional for this event. Uh, you can see Liz, she'll raise her hand in the foyer in the back afterwards, so she'll, if you would like to be a part of that, it requires registration, Kurt will be doing that for professionals tomorrow. So. Thank you so much for coming. I pray that the seeds of joy and beauty and truth will find great uh, fertile ground in your life and relationships. Thanks so much for coming. We're grateful for you. Have a great night. Shalom and peace to you.